Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Stakuyi here, and welcome back to the podcast. I just want to say, before things begin, thank you so much for all the well wishes and everyone who reached out on Patreon and on Instagram, on TikTok, on everything, to tell us how much it is that you've appreciated Gabby. I'll say this, she was feeling really down in the dumps here last week, and just the sheer outpouring of love and support is actually really touching, and it really makes me happy. Now, she's busy at work because I've been trying to get a lot of things ahead of time here in preparation for a trip that we are leaving on. Actually, tomorrow at this point, we are leaving tomorrow to go to Sweden for Paradox Con as part of a big event that, well, I mean, I, I, I've worked extensively with Paradox when it comes to my YouTube channel, when it comes to my TikToks, everything else that I do. And this has been a big opportunity to actually have us go out to Europe. So I'm really hoping that I'm going to be able to see a lot more stuff in Sweden and in Norway. I don't think we're going to be able to hit up more than those two countries, but I can't wait to do more in the future. And we're going to be documenting all of it on TikTok, Instagram, everything. I might even make some YouTube videos on some of the stuff that I see when I'm there. So anyway, on to today's thing. It is once again time for this month's audiobook book club pick, which of course is brought to us by Chirp Audiobooks. Now remember, if you want to support this channel, hit the link down in the description below of this podcast and you will get amazing deals on audiobooks. With one of these, the example that we're going to be talking about today, being only $4 instead of the usual 20-something. And that is usually how it rolls with all of these books, that you can get them ridiculously cheap. And it's it's really nice. It's a great way to learn, and it's also a great way to support us. So please make sure to hit that link out and check out this club. Today's book that we're going to be talking about is From the Ruins of Empire by Pankaj Mishra. I'm probably butchering the name. If I am, I apologize, sir. I don't know if somehow you're going to somehow hear this. But if you do, hey, I like your work. So thank you. He's a Indian essayist and novelist who has written a lot of different stuff. I saw a lot of different related things, and all of it kind of targets the area of what I wanted to talk about today, because I wanted to do something new. For anyone that listens to the show or watches my other content, you know that I love world history. I don't really specialize in any one area, as I love looking at history, culture, religion, everything, anything to do with people all around the world, their stories, I love it. But one of the things that tends to happen, especially for an English-speaking production, is that the sources and the things that we use have a tendency to come from a very Western or European perspective. In many cases, that's not exactly a problem, considering the availability of sources, free thought, information, and everything that is available to Western audiences in comparison to, well, places like China. 
but it also means that we are missing whole perspectives on what events were like for other populations. How would that affect them? What were they thinking, etc.? Because you can't really get a full picture without knowing the other side, so to speak. And I always like to look at this, like why things were the way they were and what people thought about them. We saw this before when we did the, um, it was like that, that whole series on crusades earlier this year. The crusades, per the name, naturally are going to largely be from a Western Christian perspective. But at that time, I wanted to look at the perspective from different Muslim figures and people like uh, Saladin. Saladin, I loved that episode. And I still got a lot of people who reach out now say, oh, man, I love that you did an episode on Saladin. Not nearly as many people talk about him. Everyone wants to talk about the Knights. Because, yeah, there's there's a lot that we don't really look at. So, in short, Ruins of the Empire is going to be looking at the development and the ultimate fall of the great Western empires that dominated Asia for centuries. And this is going to be from the perspective of Asian writers and thinkers. And while each person, of course, is going to have a different reaction towards the introduction of Western powers, what I really wanted to cover here today is the thing that spawned all of it in the first place. It's the kind of fascinating fact that all of these different thinkers who had all these different thoughts of how things should be done or what anything means, they had a very similar reaction to one event. And that one event is the Russo-Japanese War. I've made a couple videos about it before, at least short ones, but I haven't gone into extensive detail because this event was monumental. I mean, arguably, this one event was the big turning point in Eastern history that if it had gone differently, that would mean an entirely different world today. And it was the start in a shift of power more towards, I'm going to use the term equilibrium, and the birth of the modern world. And just like I said before, and I've said in many of my videos when talking about a topic, let me explain. So if we're going to go back to the beginning, right, if we're going to look at this, Japan's rise to prominence among nations, th this was nothing short of spectacular. It was insane what they were capable of doing and what they did. They, without an industrial revolution or really any form of participatory political franchise, anything. When Commodore Perry's great black fleet arrived in Edo Bay on July 8th, 1853, Japan was naturally very vulnerable to the power politics of the great powers. These powers were at the apex. They were at the greatest extent of the age of imperialism. From this point on, the Japanese, understanding that any of the more confrontational politics of the Western world, this could spell their doom. And so they sought to maintain their autonomy and evade the grasp of imperialism, colonialism, and really anything to do with the Western powers. Well, I say avoid anything to do. Not exactly. Prior to this period, they had been isolated. Now they would embrace change, but specifically resist any kind of Western interference, necessarily. So in 1868, the Meiji Restoration became the Japanese response to the challenges of dealing with the modern and outside world. Throughout the second half of the 19th century, Japan embraced anything it could do to get ahead, whether it was science, whether it was any technical stuff, politics, whatever their leaders deemed to be appropriate, they were going to take it if it was going to make them better. 
And when they defeated the Chinese in the 1894-95 Sino-Japanese War, the Japanese believed that they had made a convincing case to be accepted as the great power in Asia. The great power. Of course, being manhandled by great European power politics in the aftermath of the Treaty of Shimonoseki by being forced to give up the Liaodong Peninsula, the Japanese still maintained that they were going to have their place in the sun. They were going to have their own empire. They were not going to be a colonial possession of the Western powers and that they were the equal of any Western power and that they would not be dissuaded from this. The West didn't necessarily see it that way. And of course, with one of the regional powers in the area being Russia, this was going to put them into a little bit of a conflict. You see, Russian expansionism and rapid Japanese military growth and modernization, it led to a series of clashes over military, politics, commercial interests, etc., a variety of different things that were in East Asia. And as I said just a second ago, in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95, Japan utterly eliminated the Chinese in Korea. They completely won over control of the Liutong Peninsula, Manchuria, and it was only because of an alliance of Russia, France, and Germany that managed to pressure Japan into giving back the peninsula in return for increased reparations. They wanted this land, but they did not have the political or military capital to be able to dissuade the Western powers from interfering in their affairs, which really, 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 really pissed them off. Tensions, of course, increased as Russia went on to go ahead and found the Russo-Korean Bank and demanded a 25-year lease from China of the Liotong Peninsula for itself, and it just moved its troops into Manchuria in response to the Boxer Uprising, which naturally was going to seriously piss off Japan. They had just fought and taken this land, and now they were forced to give it up back to China only for one of these European powers that didn't want interference in their affairs to now do it themselves. Again, it was insulting. Furthermore, in 1897, Russia had embarked on this massive railway building operation on Chinese territory to open it up to commercial exploitation. The potential of a railway as an instrument for economic control, colonization, military interference, etc., the Russ would allow the Russians to effectively do anything they wanted to do in the area. It would greatly tighten their control. And that really alarmed the Japanese leaders. So in 1902, Japan goes on to sign a treaty with Britain that would secure British intervention should any country join Russia in a war against Japan, effectively removing the threat of other European powers' involvement if any kind of hostilities erupted. Because let's say that Japan and Russia go to war. Well, if France decides to go and join the Russians in beating up the Japanese, then that means that the British would turn against the French, or vice versa. This way, by securing at least some kind of backer, this meant that Japan would be able to engage in its own conflicts without worry of interference. And influential individuals tried to disrupt any attempts at reconciliation. The Russian viceroy of the Far East, Yevgeny Ivanovich Aleskiev, which again I'm going to probably butcher the name of, he, as an example, encouraged the Tsar to strengthen his Far Eastern forces when they were supposed to be withdrawing from Manchuria. He wanted to increase their presence. 
and as negotiations stalled on the night of the 8th to 9th of February 1904, Japanese destroyers then launched a surprise attack on Russian warships at Port Arthur in Manchuria and Chimpulo, and this was in Korea. On the 10th of February 1904, after the initial assaults had taken place, Japan declared war. This surprise attack just took the Russians and everyone completely by surprise. They formally declared war against Russia on the day after the attack, but the leaders of Russia did not actually receive any notice of Japan's intentions until several hours after they had attacked Port Arthur, which served as the Russian Navy base, or it was the primary base where they were operating and controlling things in the region in the east. You see, Tsar Nicholas, the Emperor of Russia, had been told by his advisors that the Japanese would not challenge Russia militarily, even after negotiations between the two powers had collapsed. Notably, the interesting thing is that when you look at international law prior to this event, there, there was no requiring of a formal declaration of war before you launched an attack. That wasn't actually a thing until the Second Hog Peace Conference of 1907, which was two years after fighting between the Russians and the Japanese, stopped. The attack by the Japanese Imperial Navy against the Russian Far Eastern Fleet at Port Arthur, it was therefore a surprise attack meant to entirely neutralize the Russians so that they wouldn't be able to do anything in the area. If they could seize and take these positions, there was really nothing that the Russians would be able to do until they brought in additional forces from the other side of the planet. Under the leadership of Admiral Togo Heihachiro, the Japanese Imperial Navy sent torpedo boats in order to attack Russian naval vessels, significantly damaging three of their largest ones there. The, in the ensuing battle of Port Arthur, which began the next day, the rest of the Russian Far Eastern Fleet was largely protected within the harbor at Port Arthur. The attacks successfully dissuaded the Russians from taking the battle to the open seas, even though attempts to establish a Japanese blockade of the port failed. They just simply didn't want to leave. That all being said, the Russian ships that evaded the Japanese didn't exactly get out of there with any harm done to them at all. On April 12, 1904, the Petropavlovsk and the Pobeda battleships were able to leave Port Arthur, but as soon as they made it out to sea, they struck mines. Petropavlovsk sank, and the Pobeda just limped back to port, heavily damaged. While Russia avenged the attack with mines of its own, severely damaging two Japanese battleships, the Asian power largely retained the upper hand at Port Arthur, continuing to bombard the harbor with heavy shelling. And after attempts to attack Russian fortifications on land failed, which resulted in significant casualties for the Japanese, the Asian power's persistence eventually paid off. By late August, forces of northern Russia sent to assist the fleet at Port Arthur were pushed back by the Japanese at the Battle of Liaoyang, and from newly gained positions of land in the vicinity of the harbor, the Japanese guns were able to fire relentlessly on the Russian ships that were moored in the bay. They simply didn't have a way that they could respond. And so by the end of 1904, the Japanese Navy had sunk every single ship in Russia's Pacific fleet and had gained control of its garrison on a hill overlooking the harbor. It was a huge victory. Then in early January 1905, Russian Major General Antoli Stilsi, commander of Port Arthur Garrison, decided to surrender, which 
actually surprised both the Japanese and his leaders in Moscow because they believed that the harbor was really no longer worth defending in the face of humiliating losses. They could have just left. But no, instead, they surrendered. And with that, the Japanese had achieved a hugely significant victory in the war. Stessel was later convicted of treason and sentenced to death for his decision, though ultimately, in the end, he was pardoned. The Russian Navy later sustained heavy losses during the Battle of the Yellow Sea, which forced the Empire's leaders to mobilize their Baltic fleet, and I've covered that dumb event before, on the entire other side of the planet, sending it around to the region as reinforcements. With the Russians distracted and demoralized, Japanese ground forces then set about controlling the Korean Peninsula after landing at Incheon in modern-day South Korea. Within two months, they had taken over Seoul as well as the rest of the peninsula. And at the end of April 1904, Japanese ground forces began planning an attack on Russian-controlled Manchuria in the northeastern parts of China. During the first major land battle of the war, the Battle of Yalu River, the Japanese mounted a successful attack against the Russian Eastern Detachment in May of 1904, forcing them to retreat back towards Port Arthur. Mind you, all of these are the fights that are occurring on land. And so after all of this is said and done, with fighting becoming more intermittent during the Manchurian winter, the next notable land battle in the conflict did not begin until February 20th, 1905, when the Japanese forces attacked the Russians at Mukden. And this was an incredibly harsh, awful fight. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Able to push back the Russians at the flanks, the Japanese eventually would force them into full retreat. And on March 10th, after three weeks of continuous fighting the Russians suffered significant casualties and were pushed back to northern Mukden. And although the Japanese had won an important victory during the Battle of Mukden, they too sustained very significant casualties. Ultimately, in the end, it was their navy that was going to let them win the war. Because with Russia's Baltic fleet finally arriving as reinforcements in May of 1905, after sailing nearly 20 thousand nautical miles, which is a ridiculous task, especially if we're considering the fact that this occurred in the early 1900s. That is insane. They sailed around the entire world basically to get to this fight. They still, at that point, after getting there, had the very troubling issue of having to navigate the Sea of Japan in order to get to Vladivostok, with Port Arthur no longer being open to them. And so opting to sail at night in order to avoid detection, Russian reinforcements were soon discovered by the Japanese. And after its hospital ships opted to burn their lights in the darkness, the Japanese commander, Admiral Togo Heihachiro, and the Japanese Navy then attempted to block the Russians' path to Vladivostok and engage them in battle at the Tsushima Straits late on May 27, 1905. By the end of the next day, the Russians had lost eight battleships with more than 5,000 men. Only three vessels ultimately made it to their destination. 
this massive, massive victory forced the Russians to pursue a peace agreement. There was simply no way that they could do anything to fight back. So Japan had won clear victories at Mukden and Tsushima. That all being said, the Japanese forces were still exhausted. They were low on ammunition, and the country's economy was not exactly doing the best. Russia could draw on more substantial reinforcements than Japan, but the Tsar was dealing with a lot of domestic unrest himself, and in the end, it was better to pursue peace. In August of 1905, peace negotiations began in the United States. The Treaty of Portsmouth, signed in September of 1905, then recognized Japanese rights in Korea and ceded Port Arthur, Dalny, and the adjacent territory to Japan, along with control over the Southern Manchurian Railway. It provided for Russian evacuation from Manchuria as well. But the unfortunate thing for Japan is that the government's demand for financial reparations was not granted, and the island of Saikalan, which they had taken, was instead split in half between the two powers after the war was over. The war took a very bitter toll on each side, contributing to domestic unrest in both countries. In Japan, many people felt that the peace and settlement had kind of cheated them of the fruits of victory, which in a way it kind of did, but also they were in such a sorry state after the war that they were not going to be able to necessarily pursue total war in order to institute more forceful measures. Riots lasted for days and authorities were forced to institute martial law. In Russia, news of the defeat seemed to justify the political opposition's criticism of the regime's incompetency. And discontent at military humiliation and economic disruption, this compounded by domestic absence of troops that relied upon the regime to quell domestic protest, that led to even more social unrest. Waves upon waves of opposition activity culminated in the revolution of 1905, in which protests by liberals, socialists, workers, peasants, all these different groups and minorities, and even some soldiers and sailors, they went and forced the Tsar to grant Russia's first parliament. But the bigger impact, since we were just talking about Russia, was in Asia. And this is what I wanted to focus on. This was one of the most actively observed wars in modern history, taking the shape of documentaries with real footage as well as reenacted films, both inside and outside Japan. In fact, Thomas Edison's studios in 1904 produced a film reenactment of the naval battle at Chimpulo Bay. A lot of the especially engaged observers were subject peoples under foreign rule. And this, this is the really big thing. Many of these would later lead independence movements in their own countries. I'll give you some examples. The Chinese revolutionary Sun Yat-sen, who later became the president of China, he once expressed his joy at Japan's victory while traveling. Around the same time, you had Jawaharlal Nehru, who was later prime minister of independent India, and he recalled his interest at seeing these events in his boyhood, which, quote, lessened the feeling of inferiority from which most of us suffered. Gandhi, at this point, was living in South Africa, was incredibly excited and declared, the people of the East seem to be waking up from their lethargy. The victory inspired so many different people. Indonesian, Vietnamese, Iranian nationalists, Finns, Poles within Russia, all these different groups all around the world that for the longest time had been controlled by major imperial powers, they were seeing an up-and-coming power fight against them and win. 
Japan's victory effectively broke racial stereotypes. It challenged Western superiority. And while some Western missionaries thought, oh man, this is amazing. This is the emergence of a new world. And some welcomed Japan into the family of imperialist powers. Many others, especially the ones who were in charge, they became very concerned about the new yellow peril, a resurgent Asia, one that was perhaps led by Japan and challenged Western dominance. For example, you have one on the more positive lights, H.W. Wilson, who was this British journalist who wrote, When tried by the sternest of all tests, the Asiatic is not inferior to the Caucasian. The era of inequality between the races is over. Henceforth, white and yellow man must meet on equal footing. At other different newspapers and journals would write that a new and immense power had established its claim to a new and heavy vote in the International Council of Mankind. Even the Times wrote that Japan had proved herself equal to Europe, judged by every standard of modern civilization. There was, as I said, some more unhappy ones, though. People did recognize that by this victory occurring, this was going to have a lot of subversive potential to populations that were under the control of Western powers. They were alarmed at the fact that it sent a kind of electric shock to all the, quote, colored peoples of the world. I say that as obviously it is a very specific term, but this is the writing from how they viewed it. People of Vietnam in Africa, in any place that had any kind of access to news, they were seeing this up-and-coming power, this Asian power, a non-European power, beat a Western one, something that hadn't effectively been done on such a large scale in a long, long time. In the preceding half century, Europe's industry, its military, its cultural power, it expanded way beyond the imagination of any of these former peoples had thought would be possible. One person wrote, quote, It was the first setback of the Caucasian since the Neolithic period, of the Christian since the relief of Vienna, which is a remarkably very Eurocentric, <laughs> right? I can't even begin to break that quote down. It's so, like, the first setback of the Caucasian since the Neolithic, that makes no sense whatsoever, because there were many, many, many such periods if you want to look at that. But that's besides the point. To some of these observers, it was as though the entire course of history that had been worked towards, at least as they imagined it, had been reversed. Lord Curzon, who was another British colonial officer based at the time in India, he got a first-hand view of what happened as a result of the Japanese victory. It sent, quote, reverberations that have gone like a thunderclap through the whispering galleries of the East. Everywhere that he went, he saw his own Indian troops under him that marveled at this victory. And Indians like T.R. Sarin would write, looked at the war as a struggle between Europe and Asia, and the latter's victory demonstrated that European superiority was a myth. An Englishman in India also noticed the excitement caused by the victory that writing, even in the remote villages, people talk about the victories of Japan as they sit in their circles and pass around the hookah at night. Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister, was at that time a young student in Harrow, and he remembers rushing down to read the papers during the war, saying that he felt rather lost in it. 
You have Sundara Sastri Satamurti, who was the Congress leader of the Calcutta Congress, who called for an Asiatic federation in late 1928. And in his speech for it, he said that although Japan was tainted with imperialism, it was a global power which during the Russo-Japanese War demonstrated that Asians could overcome Europe. Even Gandhi, if we're thinking about someone who, through his commitment to nonviolence, he could not help but admire the Japanese. Writing in Indian Opinion, he said Japan had been able to take the fort to Port Arthur only because she had been fighting with fervor. Fervor is as necessary in other tasks as it is in war, and it is a positive virtue. When thinking about the success of the Japanese, Gandhi encouraged his readers to imbibe some of the qualities displayed by the Japanese in a passage worthy of being quoted, and I am going to give it all here. What, then, is the secret of this epic heroism? We have repeatedly to ask ourselves this question and find an answer for it. The answer is unity, patriotism, and the resolve to do or die. All the Japanese are animated by the same spirit. They think of nothing else but service to the nation. They have so identified themselves with the motherland that they consider themselves prosperous only if they bring prosperity to the country in which they are born. This unity and patriotic spirit, together with the heroic indifference to life, have created an atmosphere in Japan the likes of which is nowhere to be found in the world. Of death, they do not entertain any fear. To die in the service of their country, they have always regarded as holy good. If, after all, one has to die someday, what does it matter if one dies on the battlefield? But how will these thoughts avail us? What have we to learn from them? We do not find the requisite unity even in the minor struggle we are carrying on in South Africa. It splits and occurs every single day. Instead of patriotism, we see more selfishness everywhere. Our life is so dear to us that we pass away while we are still fondling it. This is the condition most of us are in. Our reading of the account of the Japanese war will have been fruitful only if we emulate to some extent at least the example of Japan. If you look in India's northern neighbor China, Asia's other sleeping giant, a lot of China's post-imperial leaders heavily admired and spent time studying in Japan. Mao Zedong, who would go on to lead the resistance against Japan when Japan would invade China prior to World War II, the founder of the People's Republic of China, he memorized a Japanese song that was taught to him by a teacher who studied in Japan. Quote, The sparrow sings, the nightingale dances, and the green fields are lovely in the spring. The pomegranate flowers crimson, the willows green-leafed, and there is a new picture. He recalled that song much later when Japan was threatening China and would reflect that he knew and felt the beauty of it. He felt something of her pride and might in this song of her victory over Russia. And a Chinese historian writing close to a decade after the war would describe it as the turning point in world history, asking, what may not China accomplishment with her greater population, her territory and resources, if only she follows in the footsteps of Japan? What will her fate be if she continues in her old ways? How can she face both Russia and Japan in Manchuria if one of them has already proved to be more than a match for her? These are a few of the questions that suggested themselves to the mind of all thoughtful Chinese at the close of the Russo-Japanese War. Time and again has China been told what she should do. And now, she knows what she can do, as well as what she must do. This event was huge. It absolutely was. 
But if you want to know more about it and its impact and what people did and thought about it, then you need to check out the audiobook, Ruins of the Empire, which is on sale now for $4. Sorry for leaving you with that little bit of a cliffhanger, guys, but uh, hey, it's necessary here if you want to support the channel. <laughs> I appreciate all of you. Thank you very much for listening. You'll need to get it fast if you want, because the sale will not last forever. I wish you all the best of luck. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and hopefully, I will see you all here again very soon. Bye, guys. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.